Uh, if you haven't been with us over recent weeks, we've been rediscovering what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Not somebody who just slaps a name tag on and says, hi, I'm Mike, I'm a Christian, but somebody who's actually following Jesus, who can commune with Jesus, has a relationship with him. Uh, Jesus invited his first disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, but what, what are they trying to make? The way Jesus went about making disciples was very, very different to what other rabbis in his time were doing. So we've been re-looking at that. What, is it, what does Jesus mean when he asks us to be his disciples? What does he mean when he asks us to make more disciples? And today we're going to come across a teaching of Jesus that is explosive if you understand the significance of what he says. He's literally inviting people to switch allegiance. Uh, he's saying uh, to the community, now put off what you've been doing following those other religious leaders, come and follow me instead. That's a fairly provocative thing to be saying. Uh, and it was a massive statement that we could easily miss because we're not part of first century Jewish culture and we might, might not actually grasp that that's what he's doing unless we understand the symbolism of uh, what he's saying. So we're going to get into that explosive statement. But to get us ready for that, I want to ask this question. Do we need rules to make people do the right thing and to stop them from doing the wrong thing? Do we need rules? Think about how family works, how your workplace works, how any clubs that you're a part of, a school that you belong to, um, how you drive on the street. Do we actually need rules to make sure people do the right thing and to stop them doing the wrong thing? I'm going to give you 31 seconds to discuss this. Go. Have a think about it or uh, discuss it with somebody next to you. Do we need rules? Okay, so I've got an analogue watch. I don't really know when 31 seconds is, but I wonder if at first the answer was obvious, but then as you think about it, it becomes a little bit more nuanced. Well, the answer to that question is very much at the heart of a clash that Jesus had with the religious leaders of his day, and that is still going on today. Uh, and we're going to look at a very specific issue that they were facing. Um, and the issue that they were facing is probably not an issue that you're wrestling with today. But the principles which governed how Jesus approached this issue will be very, very relevant to how you deal with the issues that you face today. So uh, we're going to look at uh, an example from Matthew's Gospel of something that they were arguing about back then, that they were trying to figure out the rules for, and they're still trying to figure out today. Um, and it's the issue of the Sabbath. All right, and uh, if you're from a Christian background, you might think of it as Sunday. What are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do on a Sunday? In a Jewish context, it's what am I allowed to do? What should I not do on a Saturday, the Sabbath day? Now, in <clears throat> 2018, the Jewish government negotiated with rabbis, the religious teachers in Israel, to officially exempt soccer matches from laws about the Sabbath. You're familiar with the Sabbath if you know the Ten Commandments. Um, it's a day that you're not supposed to do your normal work. It's meant to be holy to the Lord. It's a day to focus on God and his laws and community. Um, and it's meant to be not a day where you're just chasing after the things of life like you normally do. But it was decided to exempt soccer matches from laws about the Sabbath, either if you're a professional athlete or if you're somebody who sells tickets at the gates or takes food around or whatever it is. They made it legal for you, according to Jewish law, to work and to play on the Sabbath without breaking Sabbath rules. In fact, you even get overtime if you're working on the Sabbath, if you're working in that particular area. So that becomes, instead of being a banned thing, it becomes now a really good thing. 
And this had been a big issue for the more orthodox Jews who were wrestling with that issue, and I reckon there's probably families here who have wrestled with it as well. Is it right to be playing sport on the Sabbath or on the Sunday? And, and different people came up with different answers to that question. And for those who were more religiously devout and refused to play, well, that literally put their career at stake because you couldn't advance through professional ranks if you weren't willing to play on the Saturday. Um, and so different rabbis were giving different advice to people about what to do on this. And in fact, one particular rabbi some years earlier had gotten into hot water because in the process of accepting somebody who had become a convert to Judaism, who'd been a Gentile and become a Jew, uh, this person was a professional soccer player. And as they converted to Judaism because they wanted to follow God's laws as, as they are recorded in Judaism, wanted to be a part of the Jewish community, but they said at the very start, but I am going to continue playing soccer on the Sabbath. That's my vocation. That's what I do. And the rabbi said, that's okay. You can still become a Jew. And other rabbis went, oh, no, you can't. You cannot become one of us if you're not willing to obey all of our laws. And rabbis from different traditions clashed over this issue. And ultimately, the chief rabbi who was responsible for uh, authorising people's conversions to say, yes, you are now considered an actual Jew or not, he issued a press release that wouldn't happen in Australia, would it? But he issued a press release saying uh, what he felt everyone needed to keep in mind, which was that becoming a Jew entailed embracing an orthodox way of life, which is known in the language of the rabbis as accepting upon oneself the yoke of the commandments. What's a yoke, you might ask? Um, anyone come from a farming background? All right. Um, we don't really use them a lot in Australia, I've got to tell you, so that might not even be much, of, much help to you. A yoke is something that you put over oxen. Sorry for the low-res image there. Um, it's basically a curved bar with some loops in it, and, and essentially what you're doing is you're putting this on the oxen so that they can pair up and travel in the same direction rather than pulling in different directions. It's making sure that people stay together and walk in the right direction. That's what a yoke is, and the yoke of the commandments is all about saying, well, we want as a community to walk in the way that God has set out for us. We don't want people going off according to what they think is right. We want to walk together in God's ways. That's what the yoke of the commandments are all about. And so as they thought about the issue of football, this debate is raging. Well, do we really want people being accepted as legitimate Jews if they're saying, well, I'm going to go and be playing sport on the Sabbath? The Sabbath is for synagogue and, and the Sabbath is for community and the Sabbath is for resting and not making people work at selling tickets and catering and doing all that stuff that is going to be needed when we're having professional football matches. And, and there's all this debate about what is going to be the right way to, together as a community, walk in God's ways. Do you reckon that debate got a bit heated? I mean, slap a law in Australia. All right, no footy on Sunday. Sunday's a day for church and community. Um, that's not going to go well, is it? So you can just imagine there's lots of different perspectives on that. But I want you to remember the advice of the chief rabbi, that to be a Jew at all is to accept upon oneself the yoke of the commandments. You know, that philosophy hasn't changed in 2,000 years. That was going on in Jesus' day. And it's nice for us to recognise that. That's a really significant part of Jewish culture. So with that in mind, let's turn back in our Bibles to Matthew 12. And as I always say, great to have it in front of you in your lap, whether it's a device or a, or a physical Bible, um, but I'll put it on the screen for us as well. Let's read the story of what happened in Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. 
And his disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So remembering the yoke of the commands, according to these religious teachers, they are not walking with everyone else in the community in the path that God had set out for their nation. He said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. And there he saw a man who had a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he replied to them, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was restored, as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him, how they might kill him. Breaking rules is a serious business, isn't it? Got these guys so stirred up that they were prepared even to kill Jesus for healing a guy. But it was much bigger than that. What they're really upset about is Jesus is veering off from what they and their community have decided are the right rules for how they ought to obey God's command on what to do on the Sabbath. And there were lots of those rules. How much you could carry, how far you could walk, the sorts of activities you could uh, uh, engage in. There was a whole bunch of rules that they had about the Sabbath and they were very, very concerned that Jesus is actually getting people to split off and go in different directions. And if that happens, what happens to the unity of their nation? What happens to people's um, just sense of knowing what is right and what is wrong, what we do and what we don't do? Everything will begin to fall apart and they're very concerned about that. And for them, the answer is, get rid of Jesus. How is it that this group of religious leaders get so upset about an issue that they're still trying to figure out 2,000 years later? And they're arguing, well, is soccer exempt or is soccer not exempt? And I, could, I wonder what, um, what would go on back in Jesus' day. It's like, well, you mean you, you're upset about a guy being healed, but you're happy to go have a game of soccer? What's with that, guys? It's funny how when we accumulate laws, how sometimes they stop making sense. But the answer of Jesus here, where as he addresses this issue and points out that, hey, no rule is ever going to cover all the circumstances. Look at that exception. Look at that situation. Um, the rules themselves aren't going to be the answer to the problem. It raises this question again. Do we need rules to make people do the right thing and to stop them doing the wrong thing? See, Jesus points out both from their history and from their current practice, their rules simply can't cover every situation. So they kept making more and more rules, trying to tell people, okay, well, so you're wondering what it means to keep the Sabbath holy? We'll tell you in very minute detail so you'll know exactly what to do. But then you're seeing that in that situation, these rules don't work. So then we'll tell you what, what the exceptions are so you'll know when you need to obey those ones and when you can let them slide. And so the, the rules just keep accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. And it becomes this yoke that is being laid on the people becomes heavier and heavier and heavier. It becomes harder and harder to know how to keep all of these rules. And then 2,000 years later, there's even rules for exceptions so that you can play soccer if that's your vocation. 
The point Jesus is making was not lost on those religious leaders, and it's not lost on rabbis today. This point that he's making that no, the rules, no matter how many you have and how well you've thought them through, rules alone aren't going to achieve the goal of pursuing what is good together and avoiding what is evil. Rules alone can't do that for you. Um, that point doesn't go over well. Didn't go over well then, doesn't go over well today. I want to read to you from a sermon given in 1953. For clarification, I wasn't there to hear it, um, but I came across it, and it's fascinating to see what was going on in biblical times is still going on today. Uh, Rabbi Emmanuel Rachman uh, preached a sermon called The Yoke of the Law. I want to read it to you. There's a lot of really interesting and uh, thought-provoking and quite good stuff in here. Judaism, let me actually put it on the screen for you so you can follow along. Judaism without law is not Judaism at all. By the way, when he speaks of the law, he's not just talking about you know, the Old Testament law that we have in our Bibles. He's talking about all this accumulation of what the, the legal experts, the ones who are the best of the best, have decided this is the way we're going to do it together. Judaism without the law is not Judaism at all. It is Christianity. Now, I disagree with him on that point, but I do know what he's getting at. We'll explore that more later. The unique character of Judaism will ever be that it calls for law. Now, friends, you may rightfully ask, why does Judaism so insist upon law as a part of the religious way of life? Why do we so emphasise the law when spirituality should be a matter of the spirit? And to this I answer most emphatically, you cannot make men spiritual by simply preaching to them about high ideals and eternal values. How much brotherhood does the world now have after 2,000 years of preaching about the brotherhood of man? It's an interesting point, isn't it? Let us look at the American scene. When will whites and what we would now refer to as African Americans even have the right to attend the same Christian church down south? When will they sit as brothers, even in pews, to listen to the Sermon on the Mount? Never because preachers will have preached a million sermons on equality, but rather when a Congress will have passed civil rights legislation, making any overt act of discrimination punishable by law. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying Christians have been preaching about this, hey, we're all one in Christ, we're all God's family, and yet they're in segregated churches. You know, that stuff's not the answer. You need rules to make people do what is right. Congress ought to make some rules about that. He goes on, when will Jews enjoy equality in admission to college or in employment opportunities? Not after 100,000 Easter's will have been celebrated with sermons on goodwill, but rather after one effective Fair Employment Practices Act or one effective Fair Educational Practices Act will have been passed. And we could talk forever in generalities about Jewish ideals or more specifically about Jewish consciousness and avail naught unless we follow the law to achieve our goals. We could talk to children forever about freedom, but nothing makes them as conscious of slavery and freedom as laws with respect to matzo and maror and the observance of other Passover rituals prescribed by Jewish law. Now, you might be looking at that and saying, I don't know what that means. If you're here at Passover, you would understand that there's some rituals that are actually part of Jewish law that do a lot of teaching and instruction about how, um, how these concepts of freedom and slavery are to work. With regard to the equitable treatment and the ultimate emancipation of slaves, our sages did not rely on exhortations alone. Rather did they develop Hilkos Avodim, laws pertaining to slaves, 
And these laws were so effective that a rabbi once expressed himself to the effect that the law so protects slaves that it's better to be a Jewish slave than a Jewish master. And that is why I love law, and particularly Jewish law. That is why I love the yoke of the law. It is hardly a yoke at all. It is rather the one truly effective way we have of translating ideals into realities. And that is why I am impatient with talk about freedom and brotherhood. I want action, legal action, legislation to achieve the desired goals. That is the spirit of Judaism and its method. That is the spirit of the halakha, and that is, uh, you could switch that word for just the law, not just the law in scripture, but all of the laws that have been made over the thousands of years about how to apply the scripture. That's that term, that's what it means. That is the spirit of Judaism and its method. That is the spirit of the halakha. May God help us to appreciate this unique approach of our faith, to cherish it and to preserve it. For alas, the world still needs it. May God help us to study and apply halakha until the Messiah doth come and with him the age of everlasting justice and freedom. It's such a fascinating message. And really, I could imagine that sermon being preached in a synagogue in Jesus' day as much as I can imagine being preached in 1950s in America. It's the same basic approach to religious life. It's the same basic approach to the law. And I actually love Rabbi Rachman's heart to see God's purposes fulfilled in the world. I love that he cares about it. I love that he realises when people just do what God says is right, then we are all blessed. I love that he notices that our sinful nature causes us to want to split off and go our own way, and we need something to bring us back and to make us walk in the ways that are right and good, that honour God and bless others. I love his enthusiasm to see God's laws applied diligently so God is honoured and people are blessed. But I completely disagree with his assessment of human history over the last 2,000 years. Remember he spoke about you know, the, the fact that this preaching about goodwill and these eternal values and all that kind of stuff hasn't really done anything to improve things on earth? I'd have to look back at history and say, man, you got that really, really wrong. I look back even in the first century where it was custom in Roman society for unwanted babies to be cast out on the rocks and just left exposed to die. And how Christians, not because there was a rule that made them do it, but because they valued human life as being precious from God, they went and took those children and brought them into their own families and raised them as their own children. I think that changed a few people's destiny, don't you? I love the fact that you hear of stories of plagues spreading throughout Europe in the Middle Ages, and you also hear stories of how there were Christians who, instead of fleeing those plagues, uh, stayed in places knowing that their eternal security was covered by Jesus and knowing that uh, they could give their lives to ease other people's suffering and to give other people the message that might secure their eternal salvation as well. They didn't flee. They stayed. And they didn't need a rule saying, you must do this. They did it because of something going on inside. I love the fact that as you look through history and you see hospitals and you see schools and you see orphanages and you see groups like Compassion and World Vision and all these agencies that were started because, not because there was a rule that you have to do this stuff, but because people are somehow moved by God to want to do what is good and what fits with God's ways. So I would disagree with Rabbi Rachman that you need rules to make you do what is right. I think history tells us that there are plenty of people who have done plenty of good in the world and chosen not to be a part of evil in the world, 
Not because there was a, a law that was written out specifically that told them, but because God did something in them to cause them to want to do what is good and to want to avoid what is evil. Having said that, let me, uh, let me rewind to what Jesus said right before that Sabbath controversy where he pointed out that the rules alone are never going to be enough. You're never going to have enough detail. You're never going to be able to cover enough exceptions. You need something greater. And this is what he says, which uh, this sermon would really struggle with and this rabbi would really struggle with. As much as this rabbi loves the yoke of the commands and all of the accumulated commands over the centuries, what, it, what does Jesus say in Matthew 11 and verse 28? And this is that explosive thing that I mentioned to you earlier. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Now, this is the explosive part. This is a community that is being taught from childhood. Now, this is a community where if you come from somewhere else and want to join it, you are taught upon entry. What it means to be a Jew is to take on yourself the yoke of the commandments. That's what holds us together as a community. That's how you know what to do. That's how we stay unified morally, ethically, spiritually. Take on yourself the yoke of the commandments. And Jesus says, come and take my yoke. He's offering them a trade. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's interesting, isn't it? My yoke is easy. In contrast to what you're being taught, and just earlier he talked about you know, all of the learned people, but they've actually not grasped God's will. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learn from me. Um, I quite enjoy the way Eugene Peterson kind of takes the big idea of this and expresses it in uh, perhaps more conversational language. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Trade in all of this accumulated wisdom. It was well-meaning, but actually it's not good enough. What you need is to learn from me. What you need is, as Graham shared earlier, a sense of communion with me that is at the centre of your life. It's not about whether you're keeping all the rules. Guess what? You're not going to be able to, and you can't even agree on what they should be anyway. It's about whether you know me. It's about whether you're communing with me. Jesus talks about it in John 15. Abide in me, and you'll bear good fruit. You won't need a law saying, I want you to go out and sponsor a child. I want you to go out and stop telling lies. Yeah, those, those laws are real and true, but when you abide in Jesus... You don't want to do those things anymore. You start doing things that are different. You start producing good fruit. And that's what the community that Jesus is founded is about. It's a community that is relating to Jesus and relating to others because of our relationship with Jesus. If you can picture it as a bit of an ex a continuum. Imagine over here is legalism. And this is where, uh, like Rabbi Rackman, you say, man, laws are good. Laws protect us from bad things happening. Laws make people do the right thing. And let's face it, 
we've seen plenty of examples of how that works. Laws are where it's at. Laws are, are what we're going to put our hope in, and we'll call that legalism. But over here, you've got lawlessness. And uh, Jesus speaks a lot about that. Uh, Romans 6 describes it really clearly. Lawlessness is also a burden. It's not a yoke of the commands like uh, Jesus is addressing, but it is a burden. And you could explore that from a biblical point of view and talk about the slavery to sin, or you could just re reflect on your own experience and when you've gone your own way and when you've done things that, are in, in, um, that don't fit with Jesus and his ways, and you realise, man, that made my life worse and made everyone else's life worse. Lawlessness is no good. So you don't... The answer is not, according to Jesus, in having more rules, and the answer is not in just not living by any rules. The answer is in knowing Jesus, our great teacher, of being yoked together with him and learning from him how to live life, learning from him how to relate to God and to others. It's in communing with him that we fulfil good laws, but we're also not so bound to them that we're not free to do the good things that God wants us to do. Now, here's what uh, a lot of people experience. If you're somebody, and I'm a bit like this, I've got to tell you, I tend to be drawn toward making rules. Um, and if you're somebody who tends to think that rules are the answer, you'll see somebody abiding in Jesus and just following his lead, but not keeping all your rules, and you think, man, they're lawless. They act like the rules don't apply. And you tend to think of them as one of those lawless people. But if you're somebody who tends to be a bit more lawless and just wants to go and do their own thing all the time, um, you know who you are. Um, and you, you look at somebody who's, who's following Jesus, and as they follow Jesus, they do the same thing that a lot of those rules talk about. And you go, oh, you're such a legalist. You just want everyone to be you know, obeying all your rules. Well, well you haven't got that right either. Um, when you are at either extreme and you see somebody who's genuinely following Jesus, you can sometimes call them lawless, which is what they said to, about Jesus, or you can sometimes call them a legalist, but you're wrong. They're actually somebody who knows Jesus and wants to follow him. So maybe we need to spend less time worrying about whether people are being lawless and not living by the rules, or whether people are being legalistic and trying to make everyone do what they think is right. Maybe we should worry about that less. Maybe what we should worry about is, hey, how well do you know Jesus? How are you spending time with Jesus? What do you love about him? What are you learning about him? What do you notice about the way he lived? What's he saying to you about the way your life is shaping up? Let's keep it as communing and abiding. And if we do that, and if we trust each other enough so that we stop calling each other legalists or we stop calling each other lawless, and we just say, hey, we're all figuring this out. How do we follow Jesus together? It's a whole different approach to doing community. It can be a bit scary because you're not saying, hey, we're all being tied together by a bunch of rules and that's what, how we agree on stuff and get moving. No, it's, it's actually we have to figure this out. What does it look like for me to follow Jesus in community with you? Scary. Let's pray.